I'm Jason Mark, the editor of Sierra Magazine, and I'm happy to let you know that The Overstory is back for another season, six episodes over the next six months. When we started planning this first episode of our second season, we imagined it is a kind of celebration, a celebration of the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. We wanted to host some conversations with artists and activists that would offer some imaginings of what Earth Day could and should be, as well as some remembrances about how Earth Day fundamentally changed environmental politics in America. Well, since we began production, the entire world has been changed by, of course, the coronavirus pandemic. Two weeks ago, when we did our first recording for this episode, well, that feels like an entirely different epoch. This episode is still going to be about Earth Day, but of course, Earth Day, like almost everything else lately, has been changed by the coronavirus. So we reached out to Kathleen Rogers. She's the president of the Earth Day Network, and we got a chance to talk to her for just a few minutes about what Earth Day is going to look like this year. Hey, is that Kathleen? Yes. Hi, Kathleen. It's Jason Mark here from Sierra Magazine and The Overstory. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Well, I'm lousy like the rest of us, but I'm not sick, which is good. Yeah. So we're we're recording. Um, Oh. So, Kathleen, maybe you can just tell me, um, how is Earth Day going to change, given that people just are not able to congregate in the streets for celebrations and for rallies? It was always going to be about going to our website anyway. And so whether it's our live stream broadcast with uh, lots of groups, hundreds of groups are participating to our online digital activism. And we have a map there, of course, for Earthrise, our strikes and our um, other types of activities that were out in the general public. And that website is still up and running for those countries and communities that can go outside. But once you get there, it'll be replaced if you're in a place like I am in Maryland, where we just got a stay-in-place order from our governor. Uh, We'll be able to see a broad range of digital activities that we can take. And they include Earth Challenge 2020 app, which allow you to take photos of uh, both air and plastics pollution. We upload them on the site, and then you get a pop-up that allows you to take an action around those two subjects in your own countries downloading and signing on to petitions on a wide variety of topics. A a favorite of mine, which is very popular on our website, which is a commit to vote under our Vote Earth campaign, Mm. as well as these live um, streams that will be running for 72 hours with our partners. You know, I've always thought, I think it's it's true, that one of the the most potent and important things about political rallies and, and marches and protests is the ability for people who are within a movement to see each other, right? There's a mirror effect that, that you can sort of, the movement reflects back on itself. In some ways, to have a digital Earth Day, that kind of function of a political rally could be stronger than ever, right? I mean, as people sort of see what's happening in other countries. Um, have you thought about that? That in some ways, even though this is a, a huge, unforeseen, unprecedented challenge, in some ways, it, it may actually increase the, the potency of, of Earth Day 2020? What we have found since we made that announcement is this giant turnout already by people who said and have told us that they refuse to be 
turned away from any kind of Earth Day activity and instead are going to embrace a digital version. We have a program that we're launching, and what it is is uh, a real-time, realistic, from Google Maps, uh, Google Earth, map of iconic locations that you can choose your avatar and you can go and protest for Earth Day. So you'll see a Google Earth, meaning a real-time map of the National Mall, and you'll be able to put your avatar on the map. And we hope to fill up the mall by Earth Day with people who are concerned about climate change. Kathleen, thank you so much for all of your leadership and for your resilience and perseverance in this really crazy time. I really appreciate it. Thank you again. Stay safe out there. Take care. That was Kathleen Rogers. She's the president of the Earth Day Network. As she said, if you want to get involved virtually, digitally, with Earth Day 2020, go online, earthday.org. You know, for me, I have to say, this whole situation is, is really bittersweet. I had my own personal environmental awakening when I was 15 years old. It was 1990, and my parents took me to the rally at the Arizona State Capitol, marking Earth Day's 20th anniversary. Looking at Earth Day 2020, I had really taken heart that this year's rallies and protests would bring more young activists into the environmental movement. And I guess I'd like to think that that will still happen. It seems like we're all online a lot now anyway. And so a digital Earth Day, well, it makes perfect sense. So this episode, the first of our second season, is Earth Day in the time of a pandemic. You'll hear from Dennis Hayes, He's the guy who coordinated the first Earth Day in 1970, talking in a conversation with Jamie Margolin, who started Zero Hour, a youth-led environmental movement that's taking concrete action around climate change. I used to hate Earth Day. All Earth Day was was, here's how you can make a fun little basket out of a recycled gardening hose. And now my opinion about Earth Day is different because I learned about its revolutionary past. I learned about what it's actually for and what it's originated in. We'll also have Reverend Lennox Yearwood Jr. of the Hip Hop Caucus, who will let us know what he thinks the future holds. We're moving into a time where people will listen to us differently. We're not just talking to the same group of people, but we're trying to make sure we talk to everybody. Plus a conversation with Jenny O'Dell, an artist and author of the book, How to Do Nothing, which probably resonates with a lot of us right now shrinking your scale of attention to something very minute and focused, like other forms of life or like other ways of being in the world. Like, what is a raccoon's way of being in the world? I'll never know. <laughs> and finally, we'll take a field trip for all of you homebound folks out there. I'm Jason Mark, and this is The Overstory. We're starting this episode with a conversation across generations between two activists who are on kind of opposite ends of the modern environmental movement's 50-year lifespan. Dennis Hayes was the national coordinator of the first ever Earth Day in 1970, and he went on to found the Earth Day Network. About 45 years later, Jamie Marglin co-founded Zero Hour, which aims to bring the voices of diverse youth into the conversation around climate and environmental justice. They joined me to talk about where they agreed, where they disagreed, where Earth Day is headed, and what the climate crisis and the coronavirus have in common. Dennis, Jamie, thanks so much for joining us on The Overstory. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having us. It's a pleasure. So, Dennis, I just, as someone who was there and really at the front of the effort, how does it feel? How does it feel to now be at the 50th anniversary of this event? <laughs> well, if you'd asked me then if this would happen, I'd have thought you were smoking something. The original event was very much in the tradition of events that were held throughout the 1960s, the March on the Pentagon, the March to Selma, the Poor People's March. Uh, we thought we were going to do it one time. We'd weave together all of these different strands that became the environmental movement, the anti-pesticides movement, the anti-freeway movement, the solar energy movement, the recycling movement, and on and on and on into one big fabric. And if we could do that for a day and really get the nation's attention focused on it, our job would be done. Uh, and we, we never dreamed that it would happen again in 1971 and 72 and 80 and 90 and finally to 2020. So it may now be a permanent part of the landscape. So Jamie Margolin, what were some of your first memories or takes or opinions about Earth Day? I used to hate Earth Day because, so when Dennis was talking about this, like my parents were toddlers during the first Earth Day. Um, so it was something very, very distant that I was not taught about. Um, I didn't know that the very first Earth Day was like a revolutionary mobilization that wasn't taught. All Earth Day was was, you know, you turn on the local news and they'll be like, here's how you can make a fun little basket out of a recycled gardening hose. And, oh, that's cute. Let's do some fun little crafts. I like the earth. How cute. Don't use as many paper towels when you wash your hands, like things that really don't really mean anything. To me, it was infantilizing and trivializing the climate crisis and the environmental crisis. And like I was born December of 2001. So I, I put it this way, and I don't know if, if people will, will quite get it, but for me growing up, there's never been a time in my life when Beyonce wasn't like famous and wasn't like everything, you know? And so I always say I heard about climate change the same way a lot of people my age heard about Beyonce. You can't remember when you first heard her. You can't remember when you first knew that she was like famous and not to be messed with. You just kind of always knew it. And, and, and there's no like pinpointing moment. It's kind of like that for climate change. Um, and so to know the drastic impacts and, and changes that needed to be made, um, in order for us to solve this and then see Earth Day, nothing radical, no actual radical critiques of like the systems that cause the climate crisis, that cause environmental destruction. It's all just on the surface. Be as least controversial as possible. Now my opinion about Earth Day is different because I learned about its revolutionary past. I learned about what it's actually for and what it's originated in. So my critique on Earth Day is not Earth Day itself or like, you know, the organizers, like Dennis Hayes, is really amazing. It's not a critique about that. It's a critique about the way the the world and the media has managed to take something that's really supposed to be about really grassroots, necessary, radical change and turn it into something trivial, like and, and like oversimplified. You know, people are often asking, like, how do we cover the climate crisis like the emergency that it is? Because people aren't really covering the climate crisis like the emergency that it is. And the answer is the way the coronavirus has been covered. Consistent updates of death tolls. Consistent updates of what people can do. Consistent, like, oh my god, this is an emergency. This is how it just got worse. This is how it just got worse. You know, the way the media is properly covering the coronavirus is the way the media should be covering the climate crisis. Every day trending on Twitter and, and 
everyone feels like we're all in this crisis together. And that's really what, and, and everyone is kind of pitching in and things are shutting down immediately. Everything's coming to a halt so we can like reorganize and re redo things for, for this virus. And so now it's like, that's exactly what needs to happen for the climate. I, I think I would agree with that almost entirely with one little Philip, uh, which is to say when, when the news media are covering what you should do about the coronavirus, they have understandably focused upon things that individuals can do to protect themselves and to protect their communities. But a huge emphasis, I mean, I, I, I've heard at least 100 times, wash your hands for 20 seconds and rub your fingers in between one another and make sure you're getting your thumbs and your fingernails. Similarly, with the climate crisis, there's a fair amount of literature that's out there that says, you know, buy a super efficient automobile or an electric automobile in a smaller house and change your diet, all of which can be doing really important things. And in the aggregate times, billions of people are very important. But in both of them, there's this policy dimension that is, is not getting as much attention as I wish that it would. I mean, if, if you look at what Singapore did on, with regard to the coronavirus, it's basically a non-issue. Uh, at the time that we're recording this interview, uh, South Korea is testing uh, for COVID-19 as many people every week as the United States has tested total in the last two months. What are the policy differences that made tests available in one country? Why did they do some things that we didn't do? Why didn't get out there much more rapidly with uh, getting an anticipated uh, vaccine um, program underway? And, and not to take away in either of these cases the the importance of individual action, but it's necessary and not sufficient. And we really need much more attention to the decisions that leaders are making, whether they're for the good or the bad. I think there's a, there's a, a lot of wisdom there. Um, so Jamie Margolin, you know, Dennis could essentially be your grandfather or people who are your parents or your grandparents' age. Like, what is the role, what does an intergenerational climate justice movement look like? Um, you know, Dennis, I've been talking to him since the summer of 2019, and I had a meeting with him and this other young activist that I work with um, over lunch, and we just talked. I told him all about our movement. He told me all about his, and we spoke, and he helped us secure um, the largest grant that Zero Hour has ever received so far. So thank you, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Jamie. There is, I, I think, something here that is not often thought about, uh, almost all movements ever uh, are fueled by youth. Young people who have idealism, who see injustice and feel it passionately, who have a bit more time on their hands than they will when they're 40 years old and they're trying to support their families and raise their kids. And, but that's a time of life when propellers of change really jump in like Jamie did and, and stick their necks out and say, I'm going to try to do this. Who's with me? There's another stage in life where that could happen, uh, which is once you hit retirement. And it's my hope that a lot of the idealists that came out of the 1960s, who are now members of the AARP, and have some time on their hands because they've retired, have some assets available to them because they've been saving for retirement their entire lives, have grandchildren that they care about passionately and that they're a little embarrassed about the state of the world that they're passing on, will join in what I think of as sort of a, a gray-green alliance between those of us that uh, are kind of wandering off toward the ends of our lives and those that are just leaping into a, a state of their lives when they can really have some impact. And I, 
I think that we all have a lot in common in those two things, and we will uh, potentially become a very important force in the future. I love that idea, the gray-green alliance. Um, I'm wondering, so you two have obviously already met, um, but I'm wondering, do you have any questions for each other? Well, I guess my question for Dennis is, like, how would you like the youth to keep the legacy of Earth Day alive? You know, I can imagine building something and wanting to make sure that, that it continues in a way that, you know, honors what you what your original intent was for it. You know, how can we keep the movement alive? And I think that you have the answer to that. And <laughs> being born uh, in the era of 9-11, being raged as a digital native, uh, you have a better grasp of the instruments that are I mean, I, I have never watched TikTok. I don't even exactly know what TikTok is. I think a, the generational torch, honest to God, gets passed. And the people who pick up the torch need to decide where they're going with it. And mm. the worst thing that the gray generation can do is try to say, we did it this way. This is how you ought to do it, too. I remember a number of the old line conservationists who were trying to give me advice in 1970 and my attitudes toward them. And some of these conversations are almost embarrassing to remember. I had a very prominent leader of a national organization say to me, what the hell does clean air have to do with birds? And I said, well, it actually has a lot to do with birds. Uh, but uh, I think we need to get out of the way. Jamie Margolin, thank you so much for your vision and, and your resourcefulness in finding a way to continue this really important uh, mobilization, even in the era of this of this global pandemic. And and Dennis Hayes, thank you so much for your leadership and your wisdom over the years. I really appreciate it, and I and I want to thank you guys both for taking the time to to talk with us today. Just stay safe out there and keep yourselves and your friends and your family healthy. Thank you. Do our best. Now it's time for Ms. Green, a.k.a. Jesse and Choi. This time, we're not going to answer any listener questions. That's because earlier this year, Jesse and broke a huge story, and we wanted to hear more about it. Our own Katie O'Reilly is going to take it from here. I was curious, for listeners who aren't familiar, if you could tell us a little bit about what period underwear is and how it works. Well, basically, it's leak-proof. Leak-proof underwear that doesn't feel like a diaper. So you don't feel like you have, like, a mattress between your legs, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I think that was one of the things that scared me about it. Because I remember seeing those ads a few years ago, too, and thinking, oh, are, is this just going back to, like, the maxi pad nightmares from junior high? No, it's it just feels like underwear, and it's, like, thin. I mean, I, I doubt you wear really thick, padded, regular underwear. <laughs> so it just feels like your regular underwear. It comes in all shapes and sizes. <laughs> you could wear a thong Great. if you wanted, and it's still leak-proof. <laughs> but I know that with any kind of leak-proof product, whether it's foodware or textiles, uh, anything that's stain, water, nonstick, or grease-resistant, um, they have found toxic Teflon-like chemicals called PFAS, P-F-A-S. And they're the forever chemicals, right? The ones that just stay in our bloodstream always and stay in the environment always. For me, what's most worrying also is that it's getting into our water. So we, mm. and it cannot be filtered out. So some of them have been found to be linked to cancer and some of these other health issues, serious health issues. I couldn't really 
answer the reader's question to Sierra Magazine on what's the most eco product, menstrual product, without finding out if what I was wearing um, had these chemicals in it. And so I had a pair of things tested and found that there were thousands of parts per million um, in my organic Thinks underwear and more PFAS chemicals in an organic one made for teens. And all these chemicals were found on the inside of the crotch. It really resonated with readers. It did. Um, yes, even people started offering to mail me their used menstrual underwear. <laughs> <laughs> if and you're how, listening, how you... you know who you are. <laughs> um Yes, the plot thickened like my uterus lining that sheds each month. <laughs> um, because then the thinks is uh, the company thinks their competitors started creating a petition to regulate their industry to have safer to create safer products. There's a lot of brands they are hiring companies and factories and raw material suppliers far, far away in other parts of the world. And so they might not even know certain chemicals are being added to their products. So even asking a manufacturer to disclose all ingredients is not good enough. The most important thing I would say is to ask the government and eco-labels. So eco-labels like um, ones that certify fabrics to be less toxic to actually test the products. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jessian, aka Ms. Green. Thank you. That was Jesse and Choi, a.k.a. Ms. Green. We reached out to Thinks for this story and asked them to come on the show. They said they weren't able to. In response to Jesse and reporting, they did, though, offer us this official statement. Quote, The implication that Thinks products have negative health effects connected to PFOS is unsubstantiated, and the continued reporting of this narrative does a disservice to people seeking out safer alternatives to traditional period products. If you've got any questions for Ms. Green, tag her on Twitter at RealMsGreen. That's at Real, R-E-A-L, Ms. M-S, Green, G-R-E-E-N. Or head over to sierramagazine.org. The artist and author Jenny O'Dell thinks a lot about how to pay close attention. Her book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy, got a lot of critical acclaim. It was even on President Obama's top 10 books for 2019. In the book, Odell makes an argument about how to take time in your day, time away from the internet, time to do something that isn't necessarily productive. Sierra's science editor, Heather Smith, recently caught up with Jenny. Heather wanted to know, during this moment, when so many routines and lives have been totally upended, how is Jenny thinking about time? We'll start with Heather's question. Right now we're in the second week of quarantine. <laughs> How is that affecting your sense of time or your idea of what time is? Uh, it definitely is an interruption, I think, in how I and probably many other people experience time, um, which any interruption like that makes you, I think, aware of you know, the assumptions that you were making about time or how time passes or how you see time. Um, I mean, it's unfortunately, it's an interruption for like a horrible reason. But, um, you know, I think it does provide an opportunity to kind of like look back at like the schedule that you had um, and that you were taking for granted um, and see how it's all kind of just like built out of very abstract ideas that felt very concrete when you were living in the middle of it. But now that you're not, you can sort of see that. 
for me personally, it's been, you know, I've been going on, you know, two or three hour walks, but I'm not even paying attention. You know, I get home and I'm, I see, oh, three hours has passed. Okay. You know, it's like, I wasn't even, uh, I'm, I'm aware of things like, you know, quality of light at like different times of the day. Um, or like when the birds are singing more and when they're not singing as much, but like in terms of like, oh, I have two hours to finish this task. Like that is kind of gone. You know, I live near Lake Merritt in Oakland and we have migratory ducks that arrive every year in the winter. Um, and you know, that's something I've only been become aware of in maybe like the last three or four years. Um, and so now for me, it's like this event when they start showing up is like an event that I recognize, um, and look forward to. And when the quarantine started, I actually, I have not been going over there because I'm trying to avoid crowds. Um, and I, I started to get worried that they were going to leave before I got to see them again. Um, because there is this temporal aspect to like when those species are here. Um, and I have binoculars because I'm, you know, looking for birds but I've also, because um, there's so little um, smog right now, you can see really far. And so I've been using the binoculars to just look at other places that I can't go. Like <laughs> I've been looking at San Francisco and I could see like every building in San Francisco um, and I can see the lake. And then so I was looking at the lake, Lake Merritt yesterday, thinking about how I hadn't been there in a while. And I, I looked like so closely and I could see like little dots in the lake. And I was like, those are the ducks. Like those are the ducks I would normally look at. And I was like, I think this is the furthest away I've ever looked at a bird. <laughs> I was like many miles away, just like looking down at these dots, which you could only see because it was so clear. But um, yeah, that's, that's about as close to uh, looking at ducks in the lake as I've gotten. Yeah. The air is so clear right now. It's like, it makes me th- Rebecca Solner wrote an essay once about like descriptions that people gave of the way the air looked like when they first before California was really industrialized and it's just like this kind of insane clarity like it almost looks like a diorama now to me yeah it's it's really surreal um but I think yeah just in general like uh and also just like psychologically like shrinking your scale of attention to something very minute um and focused is that's been personally for me like really therapeutic yeah that's also something that like I think people really loved about your book was that it was not like a heroic going out into nature narrative necessarily like I feel like a lot of people use nature as a backdrop for their own um like personal like like crises or whatever and this was much more like let's pay attention to nature (laughs) yeah well and also it's just I'm I'm such a firm believer in um this idea that everything in I mean you know it gets into this whole thing of like what how do you even define nature right but like everything in nature is is so deeply weird and I mean weird as like the highest compliment right but um you know, like the fact that crows are, you know, have been documented recognizing human faces and um, some species like using tools that like crows are are like backyard birds, right? Or even um, I recently learned that that pigeons are also 
really smart, which I didn't know. Um, and, or, and just like plants, right? Like weeds. I don't know. There's these, all of these things that are, they're just right there. And, and because they're right there, I think they're at risk of being overlooked. Um, like we need, like you need to drive to Yosemite and see like some kind of grandiose, rare, whatever, um, which is also amazing. But I just, I personally feel very fulfilled looking at things that are close to home. Of course, again, I live somewhere that's like relatively pleasant and, you know, nice to go outside. But, um, you know, just the other night we were downstairs, there's a garage on the kind of the first floor of this apartment building. And we noticed that there were these little paw prints in the dust on this old like Thunderbird that someone never drives. (laughs) And, um, and we were looking up different paw prints and we, we just, we decided that it was a raccoon um, and raccoons are like, you know, pretty common. Right. But I just think raccoons are so crazy. Like they're, I mean, just everything about them, like they're the way they look, like the way they move, the fact that they're out at night, they're, they're incredibly smart and just like watching them like manipulate things. And just like, I don't know, I was so comforted by the idea that like, while I was sleeping, there was like this small like beast just you know on the first floor of my apartment that decided to walk the entire perimeter of this very large car and then like hop off of it i don't know like that's uh just that's that already in itself is just enough for me to kind of like contemplate like the strangeness of um like other forms of life or like other ways of being in the world like what is a raccoon's way of being in the world i'll never know <laughs> yeah they're so I'm sure you read those articles um, that came out a few years ago about how the city raccoons are like incredibly good at solving puzzles and yeah. like opening trash cans and things like that. Like they're um, they're this whole other level of puzzle solving than their country cousins, who are probably great at other measures of raccoon intelligence. Right, 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 right. right. Totally, totally. They're highly specialized. Oh, one thing I will mention, just in case it's helpful for anyone in, in this moment. Um, uh is that i highly recommend the nature like webcams on explore.org which maybe you already know about but i didn't um and and it's related actually for me to this idea of time um because you're watching something that's live so um explore.org has all of these you know live real time cams of like you know a nesting eagle or the cranes in nebraska and like, you know, especially right now when, you know, a lot of folks are stuck inside um, or, you know, are living in an area where it's like too crowded to go outside um, or and also where like all time kind of feels the same. Uh, I think it's it's like a great resource to just have. I'm honestly I always have one of these open in a tab in my browser that I, I just go back and check on. I've like been watching this eagle in Iowa for the longest time. And uh, also the Osprey, there's an Osprey couple in Richmond, which is, it, that's nice because that's close to here. Um, but you can even see like, you can see the weather there. You can see clouds passing. You can see it's morning, it's it's night. Um, and just, that's a, a weird way of experiencing time but it is but you know that it's happening in real time so i feel like it's very different if it, it, it's different from a video it feels like you're really like watching something um and so i've always loved those cams anyway but i think right now uh they might be something nice 
to watch because it's not, it's something that's non-narrative. Um, and it is tied to a material experience of time. And it's just, you know, it's, we, I think we have this obsession with like checking on things right now. So it's like something you can check on that's not, um, horrifying. I think at this point, like there's nothing more epidemic related I can check on period. Like once, I feel like once we went into quarantine, it was kind of like, there's not a whole lot you can do besides like stay still and try not to infect anyone. Right. But you can watch Eagles. But you can watch Eagles. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's been so great talking with you. Um, Thank you so much. And I hope that your COVID level confinement goes well um, and that you see many attractive (laughs) birds. Thanks. And likewise, stay safe out there. That was Jenny O'Dell talking with Sierra Magazine's Heather Smith. The website that Jenny mentioned is explore.org. Jenny's also got a great essay in the current issue of Sierra Magazine. She wrote about Earthrise, that iconic photo of the Earth rising over the moon's horizon. You can find it in print or online on our website, sierramagazine.org. The Reverend Lennox Yearwood Jr. is a minister, a U.S. Air Force veteran, and the president and founder of the Hip Hop Caucus, a political and environmental activist organization. Here, Reverend Yearwood talks about where he's from and how that led him to care about the planet. So where I come from um, is from the great state of Louisiana. I, uh, my parents are both from the Caribbean. And so you combine that, the Gulf Coast and the Caribbean, and you have a super environmentalist, and that's me. <laughs> um, I think when Hurricane Katrina hit, this was my home state, and these were my family and friends, particularly in New Orleans, and to see what that, that devastation and destruction could do. Um, if there hadn't have been a Hurricane Katrina, you know, Louisiana was still called Cancer Alley um, because of all the toxins that were there and, and all the, the oil refineries and and pollution. And so I began to, you know, begin to connect those dots to look at how we can fight both poverty and pollution at the same time. Now, it's funny because I'm around a lot of my my friends who are um, from, you know, from Vermont or from uh, um, Bend, Oregon or wherever, or Sonoma County. And, uh, you know, they have a very different origin story. You know, they have the, man, I was out in the woods with my dad and and, uh, you know, would see the, the mountain sky and this and that. <laughs> it was, all sounds beautiful. Um, and I, sometimes I'm like, man, my story is about pollution and, and a cancer alley and Hurricane Katrina. Um, but, you know, we're all, we all come in this together, which is, I think, also the reason why I've been a proponent for why it's important, not just how we got here, but realizing that people come into this movement differently. This year marks the 50th, you know, anniversary of the Earth Day. And like any 50-year-old, um, you know, you have aches and pains. Um, you don't quite move like you used to. Um, and so I think that, you know, we should just be mindful of that. We get, you can get stuck in your ways. Um, the difference, clearly in the 20th century, people were fighting primarily for equality, but in the 21st century, we're fighting for existence. Um, what the coronavirus has shown um, is what it looks like 
Um, what it looks like when you have people who don't believe in science in charge, what it looks like if we don't put things in place um, now and begin to change our behavior. So if we we come out of this, and obviously, hopefully we will, I actually believe that um, we're moving into a time where people will listen to us differently. That's why it will be very important for us to make sure that we're not just talking to the same group of people, but we're trying to make sure we talk to everybody. I know it's a tough time, but this will be much tougher um, 20 or 30 years from now if we don't change our behaviors. And, and so we can't give up hope. We can't, we can't, we can't fall to despair. Um, we, can't, we can't lose our vision. Um, we must fight on. I'm hopeful. I'm super hopeful, actually. Um, I believe in the power of people. And I know that we can do it, but I also know we have no other choice but to do it. Um, and we must succeed. To close out this episode, we wanted to offer a little something different. What you're hearing is the Atlantic Ocean on the coast of Maine. This was recorded recently by our producers, actually right before the state of Maine shut down a bunch of beaches there for fear of overcrowding. For all of you homebound, shelter-in-place folks like me, we wanted to offer you this as a kind of moment of zen. So for the next minute, just take a breath and listen to the waves at Kettle Cove in Cape Elizabeth, Maine. The Overstory is produced by Josephine Holtzman and Isaac Kestenbaum at Future Projects Media with help from Daniel Roth. Our theme music is by Jeff Brodsky. This episode was mixed by Merritt Jacob. I want to give a big thank you and shout out to Topher and the whole crew here at the audio studios at the Berkeley J School. And to all of you who are listening out there, just want to tell you, stay safe, stay healthy, keep your distance, and take care of each other. I'm Jason Mark, and you're listening to the overstory.